2: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Alice Sherwood is a policy expert and the director of an open-source intelligence company, and now the author of Authenticity, a new book investigating the rise of counterfeit culture. Our world is full of people and products who are not what they seem, and Alice is here as a trustworthy guide to the con artists and tricksters of the post-truth age. To join Hannah McInnes for a live stream conversation to reveal more.
0: Can I start with a very basic, but I think best place to start, which is a question you ask in the introduction. What do we mean by authenticity anyway? And then you give two meanings, really, which are ultimately the opposite of each other.
1: It's a completely fascinating question, and it's one that we don't ask or we don't ask enough, we just use the word. And the thing that struck me very, very forcibly is that there are kind of two types of authenticity. There's there's the original idea of authenticity, the very oldest idea, which is one that is, if you like, factual. It's all about evidence, it's all about verisimilitude, if you want me to use long words about it. What it really is, is saying... What is actually out there? What is reality? What can we check? What is fact-based? What can we observe? And that is the sense in which it's been used for, I don't know, about the last thousand years. And then the newcomer on the scene is what I call not factual authenticity, but personal authenticity. And that's the bit that is so fashionable now. And that's the bit that has been, I think, contributing to this huge interest in authenticity personal authenticity is about you finding out the true you the real you it's about marching to the beat of your own drum it's about knowing who you are being nonconformist self discovery self creation mm-hmm. and the real problem with these two different views and there are loads more but let's just start with two is that personal authenticity is about feelings it's private it's subjective only you know whether you have found the true you, only you know your genuine drumbeat. Whereas the other sort of authenticity, which is factual, so is that report that we've just seen on television actually an authentic picture of what's going on, is, well, it's not about feelings, it's about facts, it's scientific, it's about falsification, it's about verification, it's public, it's not private. And the two are completely opposite. And we, yet we use the same word to mean these two completely different things. And to be honest, and maybe we'll get onto that, a whole host of other meanings in between.
0: They are completely the opposite, but they do have, as you say, something in common.
1: They do, which is that what they need, in each case, what you need for authenticity is the story you tell to reflect reality, So the personal authenticity, the story I tell about myself, the story I feel about myself, um, has to reflect who I really am. And for authenticity out there in in the rest of the world, reality, the story you tell has to reflect reality. So to pick an example of someone I try not to mention at all in my book, an authentic picture of an inauguration of an American president will give the correct amount of people, the right number of people who attended the inauguration, not just the number that he wants, he wished had been there.
0: And both, as we'll discuss, they are in both senses of the word. The modern day has sort of profound repercussions on how we see them and how they're changing. But before we sort of come to that, why why did you want to dedicate such, such a lot of time and effort to this particular subject? I think that perhaps you might mention a sort of, you know what you were just talking about about why it's so important today but also a very personal reason that made you start to think about
1: authenticity it's exactly that there's two reasons i was completely fascinated by all the stories that i came across of people and events and things that were less than authentic so i'm afraid i have to be honest i love con men i love tricksters I love forgery. I love all sorts of deception. I've got to be completely straight about that. But what completely fascinated me, the big picture, if you like, is that we seem to be, we're in this world where authenticity, we say authenticity matters to us more than ever before. And the pursuit of authenticity, it's almost, it's almost become a spiritual goal. It's something we all strive for. And yet, at the same time, we've created this world that is less authentic, that is faker than ever before. So that was my big picture. And I see it. I mean, I obviously, I read, you know, whenever I look at the papers, I filter out, um, go straight for the authenticity things. I mean, we're in a really interesting position at the moment where we have a prime minister whose unique selling point was that he was an authentic kind of guy. Uh, That he, you know, the rumpled hair, the tie askew, the creased suit, the jokes. That's why people warm to him, and yet he's someone who's had to resign because he was insufficiently authentic, seen as being insufficiently authentic, to his colleagues and to the public. So you've got exactly that, if you like, in one person. Uh, We're attracted to authenticity, and yet we do very badly with it. So that was my big-picture reason, and the very personal reason was that... Some time ago, I found that one of my best friends, and in fact, a colleague, was a complete fantasist and a fabulist. And that pretty much everything he told me about his life wasn't true. And I now know that the things he, had, he told me about his life are probably the four or five top fibs that imposters tell. Okay, so I have to tell everybody, this was before the internet. So, because you will think, how could I possibly fall for this? How could you be so stupid about this? So things he told me um, that he was from an aristocratic family. That's a very common imposter lie. Uh, he said, obviously there was tragedy in his past, very sympathy inducing tragedy. And this is a real giveaway, the secret but important job insecurity that he couldn't tell me about. So these are all very, very standard imposter lies. And if it had happened today, I think I could have probably got onto the Internet and, and rumbled him. But I didn't.
0: I want to immediately talk about the Internet in response to that question. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to dot, dot, dot to technology yeah. and the Internet there, because I just, you know, you're talking about an, a classic imposter. And in the book, you use these extraordinary stories to talk about imposters and con men from history and draw parallels between them and modern day um, imposters and modern day conmen. In terms of con men, you say that the first four decades of the 20th century were the golden age of the con man, and you tell this particularly kind of gripping story about one particular con man. Perhaps you could tell us about him and what he showed you about the sort of essence of a con man and also. Almost more interestingly, about the conned, all of us, perhaps. I'm speaking for a How To Academy audience who I know must be the conned and not the con man.
1: I'm sure they are the conned because most research shows that the clever you, cleverer you are, the more susceptible you are to cons. So, to the intensely clever How To audience out there, you're probably more likely to be conned. So, yes, he was an extraordinary one of the most successful con men. Ever He was called Yellow Kid while the Yellow Kid. He claims that he invented the wire fraud. So if anybody's seen The Sting, have you seen The Sting? That extraordinary con man movie with Robert Redford and Paul Newman uh, of a racing scam. Uh, he claimed to have invented that. And what he did, uh, shall I, actually, can I tell? say the racing scam in one line? Is that OK? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, ra- the racing scan, Brilliant. the racing result scan is a fantastic one. You manage to convince, you find someone who wants to make a lot of money on the races, and you convince them that through whatever clever means you have, that you can get the race results a couple of minutes earlier than the results are announced. And that gives them time to bet on a horse that they know has already won. So that is absolutely the essence of a con. This is something that is irresistible and that it looks like a sure thing and it's something for nothing. So that is the first essence of a con, that you tap into somebody's desire uh, to get something for nothing. Uh, And he just had great versions of this con and he would do it in different ways. Either he would say to the punter, uh, come and bet in this betting parlor and it was actually a completely fake betting parlor, or he would actually do this extraordinary thing of pretending he had a machine that could tap into the telegraph wires to get the results early. Uh, And in all of the things, what he did, and this is the second step of the con, is that he let them win a small amount, it's called a convincer, to convince them that there was money in this. And then of course, he would send them home for a whole much bigger sum of money. They would come in and bet, and guess what, they would lose. So Kid Wiles motto, if you like, and it's a good motto for all of us, which is that if somebody tells you uh, they'll give you something for nothing, you will get nothing for something.
0: The, the mottos also are things like no story is ever quite, no good story is ever quite true and things along those lines, which made me go, you know, my reaction was, oh, disappointment because... Uh, you, you mentioned that the audience would be the easiest to be conned because they'd be very intelligent. And you talk about how con men manipulate the human psyche and the fact that we want to believe things to be, to, to, you know, we have confirmation bias or we have positivity bias and uh, an innate propensity to trust. Personally, I, I think that those are all good things that we don't want to do away with by becoming very sceptical and always having our antenna up to inauthenticity.
1: I couldn't agree more. You don't want to go through life doubting everything and everyone. But there are moments, I think, where you should take a step back. And the, the line you quote about no good story is ever quite true. I think I, I like that because it's a more elegant version of the if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. But when you are, when it does seem too good to be true. You know, when someone is offering you this incredible win or someone you've just met looks like, you know, the romantic man or woman of your dreams and you you are actually literally saying to your friends, I can't believe it, it seems too good to be true. You have that feeling, which you squash because you need the money or you you want the love. When you, I I think, basically what I think is go through life trusting, but then trust those instincts. And when you hear those little doubts, I mean, this, is, I, this is, would be my take. When you have those little doubts activated, just take a minute before you tamp them down.
0: When you're talking about um, con men, there are some stories from history. But the fact is so many of the of the ways and the means that they do their conning are still very much around today. And you use the extraordinary example in your chapter about deception of Elizabeth Holmes. I'm sure many people, most people are familiar with her story. It's a recent um, documentary. I wonder if you could sort of tell us why you chose to include her, but also the fact that's so interesting about her in the book is that she stands out as a woman. So I wonder if you, you could tell us why the professional, uh, you know, the uh, there are so few women in, in this whole genre of imposter.
1: I know I know it's you know the grift as they call it hasn't until recently uh, been an equal opportunities employer but but things are changing I'm not sure whether we should be happy about that but I'll I'll come to that. So yes she is completely fascinating and in a sentence for for people who haven't come across her uh, or read David Carey Roo's fantastic book Bad Blood She was someone who claimed to have invented a blood test, a a test, a pinprick test. So literally a pinprick of blood that you could put into her magic machine and it would test for all, practically every type of illness from cancer to HIV to blood clotting to everything you can think of. And there are some tests that can be done on a pinprick of blood, but most of them can't. But this was such a brilliant cell because it meant that people who were scared of needles would not be afraid of this. Um, it meant that you could do tests, you know, in difficult circumstances on the battlefield really easily. It, it was an amazing proposition And the problem was simply that the machines she came up with and claimed that could do this never worked. So she, in effect, did something very similar to Kid Wild, who I was talking about before, who had this magic machine that you you could rig up to the telegraph wires and get the racing results early. She had a sort of thing that people could believe in if they wanted to. It was a sort of prop that helped them. And with that, she built this company that at its peak was valued at $9 billion. And she was extraordinary. So uh, there's uh, uh, reports, I think there's a film too, of the then Vice President Joe Biden coming round and looking at the lab and being impressed and saying, this is the future. Every single machine piled up against the wall was uh, her mini lab, which never worked it was as phony as the betting store of 100 years before. So this kind of structure, the anatomy of a con, is universal and timeless. So I I found that completely fascinating because it meant I went into this to understand my own experience with an imposter, but also to, to understand the world. And it's just, I found it fascinating to be able to tell the stories, but also just map out what to look for.
0: And she is a, exceptional in the sense that, as I said, she's a woman, but that you, you do say that you don't think it's because as, women are necessarily <laughs> better and kinder uh, and less likely to to be con women. It's just that you know you, you answer your. Yeah.
1: Hannah, I don't think you tell me what you think. I don't think we're necessarily any nicer or better than men, I'll, t- I'll tell you what it is, is that I just became aware because I'd read so many things about imposters and con-, con artists and the rest that literally women never showed up. So there is a, you know, there are classic works of the con uh, where you have three con men to a page. And in the whole book, there's one person called Lily the Roper and, and that's it. Bram Stoker who wrote Dracula, wrote a book called Famous Imposters, to Women. And the only imposters that there used to be would be women pretending to be princesses or women pretending to be sort of spiritual crystal ball gazers. And that was because it was the only thing that they could convincingly pretend to be. So you could have all these male imposters who are pretending to be generals and doctors and princes and firemen and pilots. But women... Until about the last 50 years and not even, it wouldn't have been convincing because women couldn't do those things. So I kind of regard it as a peculiar and perverted kind of progress that we can actually have someone who pretends to be this great tech entrepreneur as Elizabeth Holmes did. Because even 20 years ago, nobody would have believed her.
0: Well, what women were being imposters doing was trying to emulate and mimic men. You know, And you talk about that when you talk about fashion and, and how that's what, you know, women, that's their imposter role in, in recent history is trying to mimic and, and you know, take the place of, of men, I suppose.
1: Completely. the Apart from the fortune tellers and princesses, uh, the main thing that women who pretended to be something they weren't uh, was they pretended to be men. Because once they were pretending to be men, they could be pirates and doctors and um, soldiers and anything they wanted to be.
0: Well, one one place that you find all, all of the fakery and extraordinary, you know, being an imposter, being counterfeit, being all, all of that is in, in your fascinating few chapters about um, nature, which I, I just had to keep stopping and starting and, and rereading because it's just learned some extraordinary things about the natural world. We won't be able to cover anywhere near all of the Um, things now about the butterflies and but perhaps you could just talk about why you wanted to see what nature had up her sleeve to indicate to you why people would be fakers and con artists uh in you know in the modern day and throughout history
1: firstly what became clear is in the kind of human world imposture and deception and con artistry is the rule and it's not the exception. So I wanted to understand how it was that we seem to be biologically wired, both to deceive and to be deceived. Mm -hmm. And I just came across actually, again, just a small personal experience of coming across a butterfly uh, that seemed to be one thing. Well, it actually looked, I actually thought it was a crinkled dead leaf as it were, because it looked so perfectly like a leaf. And actually finding that this was a butterfly and this absolutely took me into uh, the realms of animal mimicry and how it happens because mimicry, faking it, is just such a good way to survive. And what became very clear was, and I looked, I went back to the the butterflies that uh, helped first define the concept of mimicry, which is just one butterfly, which is basically a cousin of our boring cabbage white butterfly, butterflies, that mimics another one that's poisonous. And it has exactly the same colors, exactly the same patterns, except it's not poisonous. And this is incredibly clever, of course, because all the predators, the birds that would otherwise eat it, avoid it. And it isn't that it chose to dress up. It isn't like my imposters, my con men who chose to dress up as something else. It's just simply that every time a butterfly had a little blob of colour that made it look a little bit more like a poisonous one, it would survive longer. It would have more offspring that had that blob. And those offspring that looked more like a poisonous one would also have more offspring until you ended up without any butterfly ever having intended done anything on purpose with a perfect mimic a perfect deceiver and i found that just completely fascinating because it means there's a mechanism there a bit like a market mechanism that simply means that come what may some people some animals are going to be deceivers because it works
0: and they are also going to be freeloaders and I I wonder if you could just tell the genuinely fascinating story about the great egg race.
1: Oh, the great egg race, I love the great egg race. So this is the story, um, in fact, of, she was then a young zoologist called Claire Spottiswood, she's now a very, very grand professor, uh, who was investigating two African birds and one of them is completely charming, little little bird called the tawny prinia, and to its huge annoyance, sorry, I'm doing all this personalization, of course, animals can't decide this. I'm talking as if they're some kind of Disney animal. Their biggest problem is that another bird called the cuckoo finch lays its eggs in their nests, and it's very hard for them to tell which egg is theirs and which is the cuckoo finch's, and if they're not careful, they'll end up hatching, feeding and basically bring, bringing up the cuckoo finch's offspring. So the old, cuckoo finch is a complete free rider. I mean, really, really low life, never brings up its own offspring. Deadbeat parent just goes off and her, has more eggs and lays them in, others, a, 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 in other birds' nests. And so what the prinia has done over time is develop these unbelievably detailed beautiful patterned eggs in order to be able to tell its eggs apart from the cuckoo finches and turf them out so that it's not bringing up the cuckoo finch chicks but over time every time it comes up with a pattern say blue pale blue with squiggles and it's on the left the ones on the right the cuckoo finch evolves the same pattern and if the prinnia then moves into having pale pink eggs with red squiggles so does the cuckoo finch if it moves into creamy white with black squiggles so does the cuckoo finch and basically after a while it became very clear to claire and her associates that what was this great egg race was actually an arms race so every time the printer comes up with some defences very very soon after in evolutionary terms so does the cuckoo finch Prinia does something new, Cuckoo Finch copies. And it's a race, if you like, that never ends. One gets the advantage, then another, then the other, then the other. And that's another one of the things that we see much later on uh, with any kind of faker, is that the fakers get the first advantage, then we catch up. Then they work out another way to deceive us. Then we find a way around it. Then they find another way to deceive us. And that's the structure of it.
0: Oh, there, is, there are so such a great many things to, to bring up, to bring out of the book. And I knew we wouldn't have time to get through them all. So I'm going to move on to one of the most important things, which we've already discussed, which is the sort of way in which authenticity is changing in our modern world as we go go into our modern world. And you tell an extraordinary story to explain that, which is the story of an Andy Warhol uh, painting. You use that to show how the very meaning of authenticity started to change and what came to take its place. I wonder if you could tell us why you why you use that and what it shows.
1: Well, I became very fascinated after looking at authenticity in people and nature's wiring, biological wiring for authenticity, what we mean when we describe things as authentic and there, we just use the word to mean basically whatever we value, whatever we find valuable. So back in the day, if we were valuing, I look at, there's a chapter about art. Uh, what was really important to anyone buying art was that it was actually painted by the artist himself. So there's a wonderful kind of exchange of quite letters between Rubens and somebody who wants to buy Rubens, where Rubens keeps saying, oh yes, I'll give you an uh, an authentic Rubens, I'll just get someone else to paint the animals. And the buyer going, no, 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 I want a Rubens. That's Rubens that you have painted and only you have painted. And for most of our understanding of art, what you want, if you want to say what makes something authentic, is you want an author. So this is another type of authenticity, another way, not another type of authenticity, another way we use the word that we say, if we're buying an old master, we need to know it was by that guy, by Rembrandt, and not by anyone else, not by his studio, not by his fans, nothing. Uh, That's author authenticity. What happens with our meaning of authenticity when we hit, if you like, the 20th century, and you have artists like Warhol, but it could be her, it could be Damien Hirst, you could come up with any number of examples, where you have artists who are deliberately not making things themselves, not using a paintbrush to do unique strokes, but making things mechanically. So Andy Warhol always said, I want to be a machine. He didn't paint his pictures, he screen printed them, and, which is basically like a sophisticated form of stenciling. And he didn't even do it himself. Uh, and my favorite quote, and one of the things that started me off on this chapter, was Andy Warhol being interviewed about his art. And he said, well, if you like my pictures, why don't you talk to Gerard over here? Because he painted most of them. And that was absolutely true. Mostly they made screen prints of existing photographs uh, that he and quite often Gerard would turn into screen prints in the studio. So there was a really interesting thing, because at some point Gerard decides he's had enough of this. And anyway, he's fallen in love with an Italian girl. So he heads off to Italy and Andy doesn't send him money as he has promised and Gerard decides to do well hang on a moment i've made warhols for the last 4 years why don't i just make a warhol and he does exactly the same process of taking a photograph making these stencils etc cetera, etc cetera, and asks Andy whether you know, he he wires, he telegrams Andy and says, I'm making these, I hope that's okay. He sells them all to a gallery and pretty soon the gallery uh, finds out that they're not real Warhols. So here we get into a really interesting thing. Is something made in more or less the same way as Andy always made them, an authentic Warhol? Well, uh, what Gerard finds out is that in Italy, selling a forgery, I can get you fifteen to twenty years in jail. Uh, so it's pretty important to him that Andy authorizes the Warhols that he's just made, and um, eventually Andy does, but of course asks for the money. But I think what's really interesting there is that it isn't author the author that made those pictures authentic. It was that Andy authorized them. So you get this completely different view. It's not the artist making a picture that makes it authentic. It's the artist saying that it's his picture. And that's much more like a brand than a work of art. Mm. Um, And so I, I, I thought there's a number of stories around Warhol and other artists that just chart this real shift in meaning from a sort of artist's hand authenticity to an artist's brand authenticity so you you see it much more we we would call you would call something what's the best way of saying this you would call something an authentic Rembrandt if Rembrandt painted himself but painted it himself you wouldn't expect if you were saying oh I'm wearing authentic Ralph Lauren you wouldn't expect Ralph Lauren to have made it himself
0: what's changed in, in what you've just said is you know, we're, we're told essentially in those in that scenario what to value, what to see as authentic by, you know, something that doesn't necessarily fit, uh, you know, in our hearts or, or our guts. And you say we should learn. And I think this is an extraordinary subject which could take an hour to work out how to do this. Because you say, well, we should learn to value what we should value, just sort of not what we're told to. Uh, you know, as passive consumers, you say we, we, we shouldn't, um, just heed the attention seekers, but we should seek out what's worthy of our attention and that's utterly fascinating to me in that how on earth you know do we do that and is it down to us or is it down to you know the messages that we're permanently bombarded with are we passive or active in that
1: well we're surrounded now by so much stuff that I think part of our desire for authenticity is some kind of desire to push away some of this noise and find out what matters to us Mm. and find out what what to pay attention to. There's a, a William James quote that I've always found very powerful, which says, at the end of your days, your life experience is the sum of what you paid attention to. And I don't know about you, but that completely chills me because You could, and I think this is one of the problems with social media being so influential, and I I don't write in detail at all about social media because other people have done it so much, but that it puts pressure on you to live live someone else's life, not your own. And I think that perhaps that's one of, I mean, there's quite a lot of things. Most of the book, as you've seen, I mean, all of the book is is written in what I hope are very page-turning stories, but every now and then there's a kind of, stop and think moment or it was my stop and think moment uh, which is that is the point of many of these sorts of authenticity is what are you paying attention to are you paying attention to what shouts loudest or what is most worthwhile
0: and also this obsession that you you know you say perhaps we overvalue and here you you talk about originality uh, authenticity as originality and perhaps we overvalue it because you were just saying you know it matters so much to us the authenticity in that the artist painted it or the artist authorised it. But I love the way you weave in Shakespeare there because obviously, you know, and and so much of literature is just complete blatant copying and we love it for that. You know, we cross-reference it and we embrace it and you say sometimes that's the best creativity
1: of all. Well, I, I do because I think in almost any, any creator will tell you, any honest creator will tell you that, however they put it, that we're all standing on the shoulders of giants, or, well, everybody, including Picasso, has been quoted as saying, you know, great artists don't borrow, they steal. And there is that wonderful and classic example from Antony and Cleopatra, where Shakespeare lifts North's version Almost word for word, except Norse version, which anyway, he lifted, is so dull and plodding, and Shakespeare's is so wonderful. And it is those tweaks, those bits of creative improvement that make something original as in worthwhile. Mm. But of course, now, I think probably you can't, you can't really tell. But my question really is, if, if this was nowadays, would North sue Shakespeare for plagiarism? And would he succeed? Because you could lose a lot of really valuable stuff by this obsession with our obsession with everything. It has to be not just an improvement on where, what went before, but somehow completely new and different. Um, and sometimes new and different isn't actually much good.
0: And I mean, one place where authenticity really does matter we've we've sort of touched on it is of course in when brands tell us what we're we're getting we want to be getting that thing we don't want to be duped and we are i mean i can't remember the statistics about the amount of times per day you say we are just getting messages from brands and we don't have the time there to be permanently questioning permanently seeking the the information we want to be able to trust them but you talk about that in a chapter you called intangibles. Now, perhaps everybody else listening knows what they are. But I was fascinated by this idea of intangibles and, and how they feed into this personal authenticity. But also, you know, why, why there's quite a worry there that, uh, you know, we're, we're it's behind the reason we're buying so many fakes and we're sort of being duped a lot.
1: Well, I completely agree about those millions of messages we're getting and we haven't got the time to work out necessarily what's real in all the brand messages we're getting. And it's quite like your point right at the beginning about, do we want to go through life mistrusting everything we hear? I mean, that kind of, what a way to live. And where I was fascinated by what are called brand intangibles. So not the physical product, but all the kind of Cachet or good feeling or cool that is associated with a product came about because I I went to go and visit the fake hunters the people who hunt down counterfeiters and the huge number of counterfeit products that there are and the number is just it it so boggles the mind I every time they swoop down on some counterfeiters I look at the number of counterfeits they seized and work out whether it would fit a local. Tesco supermarket, an out-of-town superstore, or the whole of Glastonbury. Literally, those are the types of numbers of items, counterfeit items that are being seized. So you've just got to try and picture it. But what I thought was really interesting is that the more we buy into byproducts because almost uh, we see them as a friend because they share our values or they have the cachet we aspire to, or the image we aspire to, the less we're buying the physical product, which is is fine. uh, And is very much the case now, particularly with the whole um, purpose agenda to business. But whilst we're enjoying that, we're feeling inspired by that, the counterfeiters are absolutely rubbing their hands because... Every bit of brand intang- of the brand that is intangible, that's every bit that isn't the physical product, just the feel-good stuff or the way it makes you feel good, to a counterfeiter is simply the bit they don't have to copy. It's simply the bit that they, like our Cuckoo Finch, can free ride on. Uh, and they are absolutely thrilled because if most of the sweatshirt you buy is because it's cool because someone cool wears it, they can just go off and make it somewhere cheaper and free ride on that cool on that advertising and what that's done is it's kind of a humongous own goal really uh, for the brands uh, because it has made life so much easier for the counterfeiters
0: but does as you question is that necessarily a bad thing it means that people who couldn't otherwise afford a copy now can i mean it is it, where's the sort of worry?
1: Where's the worry? I had a long talk with the fake hunters from an organization called React, who spend their entire time, but they managed to stop, I mean, tens of millions of counterfeits every year. Well, people would say it's bad because you are stealing, effectively stealing from the brand. If you're buying a counterfeit, you're stealing from the brand. Other arguments why it's bad, is that uh, there's usually some pretty unpleasant people who do the counterfeiting. Uh, because counterfeiting, again, if you are organised crime, is fabulous because the penalty is quite low and it's, it's really not very dangerous. It's not like drugs or like, smuggling drugs or guns. So the brands would, would get very, very worked up uh, about saying, isn't it OK for people to, to buy an imitation if they can't afford it? And what I think is really interesting in all of this is that we we love brands. We love them for their qualities. And we say we love the authentic brands. But again, as you say, we're buying a lot of the fakes. Mm -hmm. And I think mostly, I mean, I don't know what you think. I think mostly people who buy fakes know they're buying a fake. So we're kind of complicit, which is another theme that's running through Book, and then only occasionally, complete bozos like me find that we have bought a fake. In my case, designer bag, and not realised it. Uh, And in my case, I realised it on the morning that I was due to go to the the Musée de Contrefaçon, the Museum of Counterfeits in in Paris, where they exhibit the genuine article next to the fake. And it was at that point that I realised, sorry, the brand called Longchamp, that I had bought a cheap knockoff in, the, you know, in a stall uh, near Hoban Station. But I think, bozos apart, yes, we are, we complicit, but maybe we have an excuse because maybe sometimes the real thing is priced higher than it should be.
0: Oh, I love that story. You end up taking a plastic bag to the, museum it with all your things in so as not to show. Um, I must move to audience questions, but I, I can't um, not talk about the most important, you know, really important thing, which would be on anyone's mind when they think of authenticity in the modern day, which is, of course, technology. I mean, you started by talking about Alistair and you said this was pre-internet. So this is a really nuanced subject because that would have been a positive. In the internet age, you could check the facts. You could check to see whether he was authentic and who he was, said he was. Pre-internet, you couldn't. So, you know, tick for the internet. But many people worry profoundly about what the digital age does to authenticity. To both senses of authenticity, to your personal sense, because social media, as you said, is, which has been well documented, really plays with your identity online and offline, but also really importantly, the outward definition, the fat based one, is challenged every single day by a world where information and therefore dis and misinformation spreads like wildfire and it 's very hard to tell more and more what 's
1: true and what 's not i mean it is the 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 great threat to authenticity of our time and the Internet it's that combination of misinformation from, as it were, the, the highest in the land and from state actors. I'm thinking of you, Russia, um, but not only you, Russia. And it's been an absolute you're, you're right. It's been an absolute incredibly distressing and dangerous fire hose of misinformation really, since the internet became widely used. And I have to say, I didn't, w- I didn't want, and this isn't a, a fake news book, but in the last section, I do take a look at technology. And actually, when I took a, a look at technology, I found, and I didn't expect to find this, I found cause for cautious optimism. Uh, particularly when I looked at the effect of technology on misinformation, not because we've passed peak fake, because I don't think we've passed peak fake news at all, but because in the last maybe five, seven years, we've got better at spotting it and stopping it. So it is that arms race thing again. If we had been talking in 2016 which was, if you like, when a a whole raft of very good post-truth books came out, Mm. I would have been pretty distressed and I would have gone, we're doomed, we're doomed. I would have been what um, Elliot Higgins of Bellingcat calls a cyber-miserablist. Yeah. Since then, and this is where I get, I I would say to the how-to audience, if you want a (laughs) how-to, head straight for the final section and then come back and read the rest because I became a cyber optimist, because from top to bottom, though at different speeds, if you actually look, the forces of the fight back against falsehoods is really gathering speed at every level, whether you look at international, uh, above government level, government level, even at big tech, now that we've forced them to do something, organisations, individuals, in every industry, but you need to look, uh, or rather if you haven't come across them, do read the book because there are some fantastic and I found incredibly heartening examples. I won't say that we've gone, you know, it's absolutely fine and dandy, but the dial is shifting, the pendulum is moving. And as you say, you
0: talked to Elliot Higgins, who used that word cyber And we, we had him a wonderful event with him very recently on We Are Bellingcat. And of course, it, he's one of these people who shows what you say, the, the sort of fact-check brigade that are out there. And you also do talk about the fact that this sort of what you call great digital democratization, even people watching this, have agency here there are things they could do this is my last question i promise <laughs> it's your fault for writing a book with so many things to want to talk about
1: <laughs> i there is so much we can do and there are just great stories who've of who've done that there was a a, a great click fraud after a, a protester um was killed in sudan And there was one person who kept taking down all the frauds from the internet and the fraudsters tried to bribe him. And he said, no. What they didn't know is he was no kind of official. He was a 14 year old kid on holiday in Canada, uh, no, in California, who had just spotted this and was just exposing the scammers. So I'm not saying we all have to do that. We all have to get on and be digital Sherlock's. But almost everything you do from using fake spot on Amazon to um, blocking sender. Do you know all those Viagra sellers which tells your AI filter uh, that you don't want any more of those? Or to posting good reviews or to using Google Fact Check Explorer, which is a different screen uh, that has billions, has had billions of views for their fact checked um, searches. Small and large, it doesn't matter what you do, because every little bit helps in this battle against falsified information. Uh, And every little bit of extra truth and every authentic, everything you do to increase the authenticity of information out there, and our general picture of the world, uh, helps even the most dread, the most uh, feared falsifier of modern days, which is AI, Because that is the reality that AI learns from. So every little bit helps.
2: Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler like love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook and audio.
0: so important to get that in there because this is ultimately a how-to event and I think it's so important to feel empowered that they can do things. so thank you so much for that and I'm just going to ask you perhaps I'll, I'll mix um, two questions in at once so you can ask answer okay. both So uh, Domenico says very fascinating talk thank you exclamation mark. I know this is a delicate subject and controversial subject, but would you say that religions are some of the most successful cons ever made? Um, And Simon says, in the time of pandemic panics and hostility to scientific expertise, how much should we be concerned about, now I can't, Neo mountebank Quackery, Ivermectin. I think really importantly, this is something you talk about in the book, he says peril from alternative pharma made in China. And and we didn't get to your chapter on externalities where you, you know, quite worryingly talk about China and how they can be the answer and also very, very, very dangerous when it comes to to pharma.
1: So I'll say two things. Uh, One publisher that I didn't go with wanted me to put a lot of God in the book. Uh, There isn't any God in the book. I I think that... Yuval Noah Harari would say religion is a con, is one of the biggest cons. I just don't go into that because a little bit like, and I'm not devaluing either religions or brands when I say this, you know, in a way, whatever helps get you through the day, I'm not going to come down on. So I, I'm very, I, 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 I know that view. I instinctively steer away from that view because everybody has what sets us apart from the animals is that we do have some sort of instinct for a spiritual quest. Uh, so I wouldn't I, I wouldn't say that and to to Simon uh, what we're we talking about uh, oh yes um, medicine falsification a uh, huge problem which I don't know how many minutes we've got left to to go into it. But what I would say, actually, is let's take a more recent example, which is, of course, the COVID pandemic. Yeah. We all know that there was a huge amount of COVID misinformation, uh, including my favourite, which I think did convince one of my sons, which is that they, there was a rumour that they were giving away free crates of Heineken to ensure people stayed home during lockdown. Um, which was obviously not true, but he said he almost fell for that one. But there were much more dangerous lies about uh, coronavirus, and we know that. But what very relatively few people know is that 100 fact-checking organisations from 70 different countries got together to form the Coronavirus Facts Alliance and have been pumping out rebuttals to every single bit of coronavirus misinformation in 40 languages across 70 countries, as TikTok videos, as Alexa answers, as animations, in all the places where the misinformation starts. So we know about the bad stuff. And I want to tell people that there are people, there are organizations out there doing the good stuff.
0: Jennifer says leading an authentic life could mean to people that being purposefully inauthentic um, is natural. Donald Trump, Putin resonates with so many people who think that making themselves look better than they are is just a recognition that we all do this.
1: We all do that a bit, don't we? There's, a, there's actually a statistic uh, from Robert Feldman that I start the book with, which is, says that on average, people will tell three lies the first time you meet them. And it's not because we're all liars, that some of us are, obviously. Uh, It's that we want to impress people. And when we first meet them is when we most want to impress them. The difference is, and she mentioned the name, Donald Trump told, on average, 21 lies a day when he was president. So there is a difference. There's us, you know, maybe over-egging our CV when we meet someone, And then there is the 45th President of the United States. And these are just very different.
0: Stella says, thank you for the thoughtful reference to William James. In a cataract of items overwhelming us with demands for our attention and emotional engagement, it feels essential to curate our selective experience, uh, despite the attraction of shortcuts and intangibles.
1: Yes. And I think possibly one of the the great modern skills that we all need is, is curation and how to do it, because we are in this, if we're lucky enough to be in the wealthy West, we we are in this world of insane abundance of information, of media and stuff. I think one of the statistics in the book that I got from um, Frank Trampman was that, I think it's in Germany, by the time you're an adult, uh, you will have accumulated, I think it's 3,000, things. That's an average. This is astonishing. Uh, So yeah, the problem, the problem of plenty.
0: Well, I feel like I never said in my introduction how, as well as being utterly rich and fascinating information, the book is incredibly funny. And you've just sort of reminded me of your list of things we do on average. But people will be able to see that, of course, when they get their hands on on their own copy and I hope we've touched on as much as we possibly can an hour as ever sort of flies by but um, thank you for your brilliant questions and Alice thank you very very much um, for joining us thank you
1: thank you even more for as it were reading the book and laughing at my jokes
0: <laughs> pleasure absolute pleasure
2: this week's podcast starred Alice Sherwood and was presented by Hannah McInnes it was produced by Luke Naylor Perrett and the show is made by me and Dana Outcult. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll love next week's show with Patrick radden Keith, the author of Empire of Pain, the book that exposed the role of the Sackler family in America's opioid crisis. Until then, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.